0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the 12-6 Podcast. I am your host, Colin McHugh. I know it's been a while since we last talked. My apologies. Baseball season has a tendency to disrupt even your best-laid plans, so I haven't been able to do as many interviews as I would have liked to so far, but I am really excited about today's guest. He's one of my favorite people I've ever encountered in the baseball world. It's Houston Astros pitching coach Brent Strom. We had a chance to sit down while we were in Monterey, Mexico, earlier this month, for the Mexico series against the Angels. And he's got some amazing stories. Uh, Strami has 40 plus years of baseball experience and he's probably forgotten more about the game than most of us will ever hope to know. Today we talk about our similar debuts, even though they were 40 years apart, how baseball has helped him travel the world and how Tommy John surgery nearly had a different name. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the show so you're always up to date when new episodes air and leave us a review. We're always looking for new suggestions from you guys about how to make the show better. So, without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Brent Strom. Stromy, thanks for being here. This is uh, this is really this is an important day because you're the first coach that's been on the podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, Mac, I knew you'd be good at this, and uh, it's not easy. And uh, I'm enjoying I enjoy this kind of stuff especially with somebody like yourself.
0: I will have to say you, of all the people that have been requested to be on the show, um, you probably come the most highly recommended from people who are, who are listening because I mean, you've got how many years of baseball, professional baseball under your belt now? Uh,
1: 1970 was my first year after graduating from college. So what is that? Uh, almost about 48 years. Wow. Something like that. So it's, uh, uh, it's been a long time. And uh, I'm not sure where the years have gone, for sure.
0: <laughs> you're a young man. You're still you're still a young man here in this game.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know. If 70 is today's 40, I, I don't know if that's true. But dealing with you young guys has tried to keep me younger. Although the music, I can't quite get used to that yet, Mac.
0: You're a big Motown guy, right?
1: Love the Motown. Love the Motown sound. Grew up with it. Uh, Four Tops, Temptations, uh, Marvin Gaye, the whole bit. That's, that's my kind of music.
0: Now, you and Lance McCullers have probably vastly different music tastes at this point, correct?
1: Uh, I would say we were vastly different in a lot of things, uh, <laughs> quite frankly. But, uh, you know, I enjoy Lance. He's uh, he's, re- he's very refreshing for me.
0: I always tell people he's my, like, pop culture guru. Because right. anything that I need to know that's going on in, in pop culture these days, he, A, has heard of before anybody else has and then understands it um, he, when I don't.
1: Yeah, he's very uh, he's into a lot of different things. So my favorite photo I have of him is uh, rehabbing his uh, elbow while he's on the phone at the same time. So he, he's a multitasker extraordinaire.
0: <laughs> so how I've been meaning to ask you this because I was talking to Verlander about it um, a little bit the other day. He is a little bit from a different generation of baseball players. He's been playing for 14, 15 years now. And when he said when he came up into the big leagues, it was different because guys had cell phones, but there was no like smartphones at the time. There, The internet was like it was the out there, but there wasn't a whole lot to do on it while you were in the clubhouse. So everybody just talked or interacted or played cards or whatever. What was your clubhouse experience like when you came to the big league?
1: Well, you know, back then there, there was uh, no computers. Uh, the, if any computers were held by the military and about the size of this room, this room <laughs> that we're talking in right now, uh, paper and pad, uh, a lot of verbal, uh, stuff. You looked at, uh, eight millimeter film. Uh, there was uh, VHS, those kind of things, but, uh, nothing to the extent that is now. And it's, uh, uh, I'm just grateful that I got on board. Otherwise, I'd be a dinosaur right now. And trying to stay up with you guys is uh, it, it can be uh, trying at times.
0: But that's, I feel like that's one of the things that's made you as successful as you have been at this level, uh, really in baseball in general, is because you, you keep adapting and you keep yourself, you seem to keep yourself open to whatever is new, whatever's on the cutting edge, um, while also having the reference point of 40 years of baseball experience.
1: Yeah, no, it's funny. It's uh, I, I tell people I, I get these. Uh, I, I got an award last year as uh, as Coach of the Year, Major League Coach of the Year, and people come up and congratulate me all the time. And I, I tell them two things. I say Bill Parcells once said, uh, "Writers write, coaches coach, players play." So I know where my bread is buttered. It's with the players, and I've been I've been blessed, especially the last three three years or so, to have exceptional 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 pitchers to work with, make me look good. The funny thing, the ironic thing about it is a lot of the same stuff that I'm teaching now, I taught years ago and all it did was get me fired. <laughs> and and uh, so it was almost like I was out on the gang plank, plank by myself uh, talking about elevated heaters, talking about forcing fastballs, talking about the vertical game. Uh, when I was with an organization at the time, the Cardinals, that were definitely not a vertical team, they were a horizontal east to west type team, right. sinkers, sliders. Uh, I can still remember with fond memories, uh, your first game you ever pitched uh, for us at the big league level up in Seattle. Uh, that was a, uh, that was a leap of faith that you took with me and I prayed, I prayed quite a, a great deal that game. I think you ended up going seven and a third, seven, two thirds, 11 punch outs. Mm-hmm. Never saw the minor leagues again. Right. And, I, and I, uh, to this day I tell that story and uh, basically we were facing, I think seven, maybe eight left-handed hitters in Seattle and you had come up to be a spot start guy. Boy, what a what a story for you and and what you've done the last few years uh has been exceptional. 19 game winner, uh done very well for yourself and uh, uh one of the top pitchers in the in the in the big
0: leagues. Well, thank you. I I appreciate that. I was looking back at at your career when you were pitching and I saw that you you A you were drafted 3 times. Yeah. Um you went to USC, two national titles at USC?
1: Yeah, we won in 68 and 70. Uh lost out to UCLA in 1969. However, even that was different. We didn't have the uh brackets the 64. You just had to win a regional right. uh then you win another one, and you, pretty soon you find yourself in the uh in Omaha mm-hmm. and uh and even then uh, coming out of the west, uh your you know, your competition was Oklahoma State, Texas, uh maybe a team in the south, but uh n- you know, then we'd face teams like uh Harvard or something like that. And really, (laughs) it was tougher to get out of our regional than it was to to win those games in the College World Series.
0: Right. And you got drafted third overall in 1970. Yeah, secondary
1: phase. It wasn't, uh, once you, they had a rule back then, if you were drafted and did not sign, you would go into a different uh, phase. And it was a secondary phase for people that had been drafted before. I think uh, some baseball people out there may remember Dave Kingman. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Slugger was drafted high. Uh, Jim Barr, my teammate at uh, USC, who pitched for a number of years with the Giants, was drafted high. And uh, then I started my career uh, with the
0: uh, with the New York Mets. As did I. So we both have that in common, yeah. that we both uh, we both were former Mets. And on top of that, um, your debut with the Mets went well. Uh, you didn't get a win, but you pitched.
1: Yeah, I, I can remember it vividly. You never forget your first no, game. Like, uh-uh. like I'm sure you won't ever forget your first game. Uh, I remember it was against the Montreal Expos uh Willie Mays played first base for me which was kind of neat uh I uh I went nine innings got a no decision and little did I know my next game I started against the big red machine uh I gave up a home run to Johnny Bench in the top of the second and that wasn't the difficult part for me the difficult part was going in icing my arm after the game and listening to an interview on Johnny Bench and the question was asked Johnny what did uh what'd you hit And he says, I don't know if it was a fastball or a changeup. That was a little (laughs) defeating for me at that time. But, uh, you know, at least I gave up a home run to a Hall of Famer.
0: Oh, man. So we have kind of similar stories in that that respect that I came up with the Mets, had a good debut with the Mets, and then proceeded to have a pretty bad next year for them, up and down between the minor leagues and the big leagues. Did not pitch well. Got traded over to Colorado. And then when I came to Houston, it was kind of that breath of fresh air. And I know you kind of – uh, you bounced around from the Mets to Cleveland and then finally to San Diego, correct?
1: Yeah, I, I got back to my hometown in San Diego. Um, uh, I think they were happy because I had a lot of guys that drank beer they would come out and watch me pitch. <laughs> so they made some money at the concession stands. but that was that was probably the highlight of my short career. Uh, unfortunately, arm injuries derailed my my dreams. Uh, I, I fully planned to pitch 15 years in the big leagues. I think I think what really happened, Colin is uh, as a youth, uh really overextended myself pitched way too much uh you didn't have any instruction at the time and and like yourself i had a good curveball and when you're a youngster with a good curveball you like to throw it a lot yeah and i and i ended up having uh, i became the second guy to have tommy john surgery uh and tried to come back uh, but just uh, couldn't make it and ended up getting into the coaching field with the dodgers
0: what was it like being uh, – we always we, – we joke about if, if it would have been how many years earlier before Tommy John, it would have been the Brent Strom, the Brent Strom surgery. Yeah,
1: I, unfortunately, I won 22 major league games, and he won 288. So I, <laughs> I, think, the, I think the Tommy John uh, surgery bodes better with the, with the general public. <laughs>
0: um, but you came back. You did come back from it. You, you pitched a little bit afterwards. But there was no game plan. There was no like road path or uh, path for how to rehab that surgery. At that point, was there?
1: Well, it was funny. I was talking to Jeremiah, our trainer, yesterday or the day, and and I know what you know. I I noticed what uh, what Lance is going through with his Tommy John surgery and the, the overriding concern and, and how he's being taken care of. I, I laugh about mine. Uh, you know, I ha- I was out of the game. I went and had Tommy John surgery. I got in my car. I drove from San Diego to Los Angeles. Had the surgery and turned around and drove back. <laughs> and that was it. me, me, myself, and I. just you. and uh, that's the way it goes. There was no uh, I think as as I look back, there was no really uh, prescribed way to rehab in terms of now you watch Lance as soon as he came out of surgery, uh, there was a plan to uh, strengthen and and get the arm flexibility back. And so I look at Lance now and and his right arm looks almost exactly like his left in terms of his ability to straighten it. And I, I for, unfortunately to this day, I can't really. Yeah.
0: And uh, Dr. Job, did the surgery right. along with uh, Dr. Curlin, I believe. Right. Um, how was your relationship with them going into it? Cause I mean, it was, it really was kind of an exploratory yeah, well the surgery
1: still. Uh, they couldn't wait to do it. They were excited. <laughs> I mean, you know, they had done Tommy John. Right. Uh, and, uh, and so when the, I realized I, uh, I was masking the pain i had, you know, I, back then I was using ointments. Now a thing called capsulin, which is banned right now. Um, and so I would just apply a massive amount of heat on my arm just to, just to take the pain away. And, and, uh, I, I knew I was on a slippery slope, but at the time you're in the major leagues and it's your dream. Uh, you don't want to lose it. And so uh, I really didn't really have a plan. I was just hoping to hang on. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't work out. But now, uh, fortunately for me, I've been able to extend my career through you guys. Uh, and you know me, I live and die with each of you guys' outings and, and want our want us and our pitching staff to be successful. And, and for the most part, we have been.
0: Yeah, we've been more than people expected. Going, going back to my first year in 2014, we'd come off losing... Hundred games, three straight years. Twenty fourteen was was it your first year there? Yeah,
1: twenty fourteen was my first year under Bo Porter. Uh, we won seventy games, and we were ecstatic. Oh, we were psyched. Yeah, because the year before, I think they won forty something. Uh, we won seventy games, and uh, but we started to make some progress. You know, I, I think of Dallas Keuchel as being one of the guys mm-hmm. uh, who was kind of a forebearer of that. Altuve was kind of coming into his own, uh, but we had uh, we had an array of pitchers, but there was there was a plan, and I knew Jeff. Uh, luno from the uh, cardinal days he brought me over and he had a plan he wasn't going to deviate from that plan part of that plan was finding you for example and and looking beyond the uh, the wins and losses that so many people looked at looked at peripherals looked at spin rates looked at uh, the ability to uh throw the curveball uh, and and he did that with a number of guys and i think uh is obviously has paid off
0: yeah it's paid off in spades for him and for our organization which grew from there into one of the premier organizations in baseball, our minor league system into one of the premier minor league systems in baseball. And I think that's what you guys had together in St. Louis for such a long time was the ability to just continually reload at the big league level from guys moving up. I remember when I was in the minor leagues with the Mets and you were the farm director with the, um, or the minor league pitching coordinator with the, with the Cardinals, Right, uh, we would come through and there would just always be arm after arm after arm of guys who could just throw it coming through y'all's organization.
1: Well, you know, when I when I came over to the Cardinals, it was kind of a, a love-hate relationship. I had Jeff on my side. I did not have the current pitching coach or the, the then-pitching coach, Dave Duncan, well-known pitching coach. Mm-hmm. I didn't have Tony La Russa on my side. I came in with a different idea of uh, elevated heaters, long toss, uh, different ways to increase velocity, uh, momentum buildup, uh, not the basic uh, get to a balance point and uh, pitch by the movements. But actually, what was more important was what happens between the movements, the rhythm, the timing. Uh, different things. Uh, and basically, uh, my one of my mentors, Sandy Koufax, who's my favorite pitcher of all time, indicated to me at a time, he said, you know, he asked me one day, he says, you know who throws sinkers? A lot of sinkers, people who can't throw fastballs. <laughs> and I, I watched a lot of guys that throw throw like yourself, uh, 89 to 92 with with good backspin. Uh, and it just complemented your your breaking stuff, which is exceptional. And I, all of a sudden, I'm having the Rosenthal's and the Shelby Millers and the Michael Wacka's and a, and a group of guys come through that we started elevating and long toss. I had guys out there just seeing the open open uh, gasp when I've got people throwing 250-foot <laughs> long toss and, and doing rundowns the hill and, and and doing back shaping and all these different things that I had learned uh, through all the years that uh, I tried and I brought it. And I, I was happy with the Cardinals and when jeff jeff asked me do you want to come over and 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 try this and i was hesitant at first cuz i was happy with the coordinating job i had i had been fired a couple times from big league jobs before when i did this and i said he said do you want to apply your trade over here and see if it works at the highest level i said I said yes. It was a challenge, and uh, fortunately, he stuck with me. If I had known he he hadn't fired, he wouldn't have fired me. I'd have bought a place in Houston by now. <laughs> I've been renting this whole time. That's what
0: I always say. <laughs> if I had known that I would have been in Houston for six years, still, we would have bought a place. But but in, in, you know, in baseball, as soon as you decide to put down roots, the yeah. old adage is like you're gonna you're gonna be gone.
1: Oh, well, that's for sure. But uh, it's been a nice ride, and I hope to continue for a few more years.
0: Now, did you get into coaching right after immediately after you stopped playing?
1: Yeah, what happened is uh, I was pitching in the PCL, uh, won about 14 games. But back then, Colin, you you have to realize when you're 30, 31 years old and you're still in AAA, there's really no spot for you. They It was a young man's game. and You had to be in the big leagues by that time. And I went from uh, that to uh, the Dodgers expanded their their coaching from a rover to having a pitching coach at each level. So I it was funny. I went from pitching against the Albuquerque Dukes in the PCL – uh, semifinals to coaching the Albuquerque Dukes the next year, and, no way. and had uh, had a number of guys that went on to the big leagues. One notable guy named Oral Hersheiser. Oh, who's that? Uh, <laughs> and uh, he uh, and this was a guy who was scuffling along at Double uh, A as a thirteenth pitcher, and uh, we brought him up, and uh, he took off. and And you know how tough it is to pitch in the Southern Division of the PCL. Oh yeah. And uh, he did an exceptional job, and before you knew it, he was he was Bulldog, and was a World Series MVP.
0: Did uh were you around when the bulldog moniker came ar- came through for him?
1: Oh yeah, that was that was Tommy Lasorda, you know, Tommy uh Tommy likes to to do those kind of things and uh and oral of course, you know, he looks like a uh looks like a, an accountant really, you know. <laughs> but, but this is an exceptional athlete. He was the third fastest guy in the Dodger organization, great golfer, could could handle the bat. And he had tremendous breaking ball, good good fastball. So uh, I had other guys like Alejandro Pena, who won an MVP or won an ERA title with the Braves. Uh, I had a number of guys that pitched in the major leagues. And, and the Dodgers were an exceptional organization. I think what the biggest thing for me there was to see the greats spending time spring training with the late Don Drysdale, mm-hmm. Sandy Koufax, uh, John Roseboro, the late Johnny Padres, uh, the late Larry Sherry. Um, I'm kind of dating myself cause I'm saying a lot of lates here, but, uh, but, uh, it was like a PhD in pitching to right. hang with these guys and to hear them talk about pitching to Henry Aaron and Willie Mays and, and Roberto Clemente and, and even further than that, the the fifties with the Dodgers at Ebbets field. Um, uh, I can't tell you how, how much fun that was. Right.
0: And you know, I try to put myself in that situation now and think if, if Jose Altuve becomes who we think he's going to be, if. Alex Bregman and Carlos Correa are the players that they're on track to be. I want to remember these conversations that I'm having with them now because these are the conversations that are going to be invaluable moving forward in, in my baseball career and when I'm talking about baseball to the next generation of baseball players.
1: Well, you know, it brings me, I just, uh, I just left the stadium. We're, we're speaking together here in Mexico right now, and uh, you may uh, be a guy that can say he pitched against one of the greatest players of all time yep. in Mike Trout. Yep, And I just saw him just taking batting practice out there and, uh, uh reminded me of how we have to pitch this guy. <laughs> but, uh, you know, those kind of guys come along once in a while. Uh, the greatest players I ever saw, uh, Willie Mays late in his career, but I got to pitch against Clemente. Uh, I got to pitch against a little bit against Aaron, not very much, but I mean, the, the big red machine, the Johnny Benches, the Pete roses, the Joe Morgans, uh, then the Dodgers of the Garvey say, uh, that era, it was special times. So I thought, uh, and the game has changed a little bit, but you're 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 also getting to pitch against some of the greats of all time, also.
0: Yeah, I th- I think so. And you know, obviously, generations are going to come and generations are going to go. But the, the great baseball players tend to transcend some of those uh, some of those generational lines. But I'm I'm thinking about when you came up with the Mets in seventy or in uh, seventy two, they were three years removed from winning a World Series, first World Series in Mets history. Um, you walk into a clubhouse, you've got Tom Seaver, you got Willie Mays. Rusty Staub, Jerry Kuzman, Ed Cranepool, Tug McGraw, your manager's Yogi Berra. What is that like for a kid coming into that clubhouse with those guys? Was it surreal for you?
1: Yeah, we, uh, well, actually, my first spring training, I go to Big Lake Camp and the late Gil Hodges, he passed away Mm -hmm. during that spring training. Oh, wow. And Yogi Berra took over the team. Uh, But to spend time with, to watch the, the Dodgers and the Mets were probably the, the foremost pitching organizations in baseball at that time, Uh to the point where the, the Mets actually, and you'll appreciate this, they they eschewed the slider. They didn't want people throwing sliders. It was fastballs and curveballs, and you threw the curveball until you showed us that you had no ability to throw the curveball, and then you could do the slider. <laughs> it's funny, but a lot of guys would cheat and throw the slider, and the, the catcher would have to tell Rube Walker, our pitching coach, that was a uh, 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 a, a lateral curveball, you know <laughs> that kind of stuff. So, uh, but it was a it was a pitching heavy organization as the Dodgers were at that time. And and uh, we 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 it's funny we were just in Tampa to begin the season, and I walked over to the St. Pete Stadium, which is where we trained in 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 St. Pete. We shared a complex with uh, or shared Al Lang Field with the Cardinals. And, uh, you know, you're pitching against all these teams in spring training. And I remember my first hitter I ever got to pitch to in spring training. Seaver started, went three. I got to pitch the fourth inning, and my first hitter was Roberto Clemente. <laughs> and uh, I remember distinctly fastball away, ground ball to second. I got him out and feeling pretty, pretty frisky at this time. And the next guy hit a home run off me, and it brought me back to earth. So uh, that was the, the pitcher of Pirates of the, of the Clemente era. So a lot of good baseball. Uh, I remember speed. I remember Astroturf Fields, uh, a little bit different than than the game today, which is more base-to-base, home runs, and that kind of game.
0: And I know you're – you obviously, like we talked about, are on the cutting edge of, of pitching and of, of developing pitchers and finding different ways to maximize pitchers' um, abilities that they already have. But do you feel like the game right now is moving in a good direction or do you wish it was moving in a different direction? Well, if you could change something about the game right now, what would it be?
1: Well, I, I, you know, I, I think it's ludicrous to to suggest as you hear about banning shifts and and doing all of that stuff. That's part of the strategy of the game. I think I think the contact rates have 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 gone down. I think uh, it'd be interesting to know how teams would defend the Tony Gwynns, the Wade Boggs. Of the world right now, the Rod Carew's that uh, utilized the whole field, Tony Oliva. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there's only tr- a
0: handful of those guys in the league now who can. Yeah. Do that.
1: Because the game is predicated now on on power. I will say this, and as much as I love to think about the good old days, no way did we throw as hard back then as we're doing now. <laughs> uh, athletes have gotten bigger, stronger, faster. Uh, exit velocities have gotten greater. Uh, so the athlete of today. Wh- who am I to say in baseball? If, the, if all the track and field records are gone, all the uh, the distance throwing uh, with the shot puts are gone, all the different uh, events are upgraded now because of the strength and speed and training techniques of athletes. Baseball's not impervious to that. We uh, uh, you know you look out there I watch every day at these guys throwing 95, 96 uh, with great spin on balls and it's it's not fun to be a hitter right now you know it's, uh, uh, but then again, when they make contact, it goes. Goes, goes,
0: yeah. It's. I feel like it's a tough time for that in between generational fan, the fan who remembers games back in the '80s and early '90s, but has also been following baseball since the 2000s and now into the 2010s. Because you get both of those worlds.
1: Yeah, well, I think I think what you're doing uh, with the podcast that you're doing, and I and I I know Trevor Bauer very well, and of course with Bregman, I think what they're doing actually is a is a good service for baseball. Uh, people may view it as. Who do they think they are but they're really trying to promote the game and i think we're losing the younger fan i think the uh the speed up rules have been somewhat helpful uh it's just a it's just a different game i think there's going to be new impl- new rules being implemented too because the young people today uh, want things quickly yeah they're not my generation where where they anticipate baseball without a clock the anticipation the build-up the ball three what if he walks him Will we sacrifice? Will the next guy uh, get him over? Will the sack fly win? Those kind of build-up things, it's not what the young fan likes today. They like the instant action, the the three-point play, the the long pass. Football rules have been changed. Basketball rules have been changed. And baseball needs to do that if they're going to stay up uh, with the with the everyday fan.
0: Yeah, and I think you're right. And Rob, Rob Manford and his team at the commissioner's office are – they are there to make this game better. They're there to try and try and figure out a way to make this game more relatable to people. Because at the end of the day, we are an entertainment. We are an right. entertainment uh, industry, and we've got unless unless you're a, hi- a student of the history of baseball, mm-hmm. the stuff that happened thirty, forty years ago, the average fan today doesn't really care about. They don't. They don't really know about, and they don't really care about.
1: Yeah, you know, there's been an evolution. Obviously, someone who loves the game like I do, I. I I, I I know the history of the game i I, I studied it as a kid I stay up with it. Um, it while there's a link there the game needs to progress and, and keep moving forward uh if we don't then we're gonna we're gonna lose the everyday fan and and uh it, it's a shame it, well, I think one of the difficult things about baseball quite frankly Colin is this is a very difficult game to play yeah and and people don't realize you know they they look out and they see every man playing they see a six foot pitcher they see a 510 hitter uh and they kind of relate to them, and they can't understand why couldn't you hit that ball, or why couldn't you locate that pitch, why couldn't you make that play? They're not six foot eight that can jump to the sky. They're not two hundred and fifty pounds that can run a four two fifty or sixty. They're not these athletes that we view as supernatural. They're every man, and and so the game it really looks easy when you sit in the stands. Yeah, it really does. You sit there, and and, and sometimes even myself us. I'll, I'll say, God, how, how could he miss that pitch? Well, I know how hard it is to hit. When you're an 085 lifetime hitter in your career, <laughs> you know how hard it is, especially when they spin it. And uh, so I, I have never, and I will be honest with you. I think you'll agree with me on this. I remember how hard it was to stand on that mound. I remember I will never, ever berate somebody unless they give lack of effort. Uh, for example, last night, Peacock had a difficult time. I went to the mound. It was a man on third. We'd already given up three or four runs, and I said, P. I don't even want you to think about this guy on third base. I just want you to concentrate on getting this hitter out. Don't try and pitch to save this run. Just get back. And, and, and I remember he patted me. Yeah. You know, and because we both know P he cares, he has a kind of a, an exterior that belies who, how competitive he is. Oh, yeah. And I've been to the mound with you uh, both in good and bad times. Uh, so I will never forget how difficult. It can be the best of times or it can be the worst of times. Usually, there's no in between.
0: <laughs> Baseball has a tendency to polarize those yes. those two things. Because I I, you know, I tell people, I tell my friends, you know, at the end of your day of work, you don't have somebody telling you whether you win or lo- won or lost. Most days, you don't have somebody telling you exactly how well or bad you did at your job. And that's kind of the nature of the beast with what we do. Is we're very much in the in the industry of immediate gratification. Good, good, bad, or indifferent.
1: You know, we. I tell you guys, you hear me in spring training. Las Vegas makes odds on games, and it's not predicated on who's playing right field. It's <laughs> predicated on who's on the mound. Yeah, and and that's how important this position is because it's a it's probably one of the only games where uh, you're on the defense here, and uh, uh, and so pitching becomes uh, extremely important. Teams, the most valuable commodity in sports in baseball right now is the starting pitcher. It's uh, it's a it's a quali- quality that uh, is hard to find Uh, because the hitters are so good these days, and uh, the team that can can get the most usually comes out on top.
0: Yeah, and you talked about this uh, just a minute ago, but you've been on the mound with Peacock, who has a very unique personality. You've been on the mound with me. You've been on the mound with Dallas Keuchel and Justin Verlander. And going back years and years and years, I feel like you've seen just about every type of pitcher, type of personality um, of pitcher that the game has to offer. Do you think that that gives you an advantage, or gives you like a different perspective when you're, uh, when you're coaching these days?
1: Yeah, you, each of you are individuals. I, I, I hope I know what makes each of you tick. I try not to be too long-winded out there. I remember uh, having coaches come out to me and give me mechanical changes. I've heard them do all kinds of different things. Uh, didn't work. It's basically just to, to break up the, the thought process. I've had some fun times out there with, with pitchers. I've, I've told jokes at times, so it has kind of lessened the, the tension. Uh, I know one thing. And God bless Dallas Keuchel, but when 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 uh, when the skipper tells me to go out and talk to Dallas, I, I'm not really looking forward to it, you know. And uh, but then it's funny when I go out to see a Miley, for example, a funny story this year. I went out to see Miley, and and I went to the mound, and we had gotten Will Harris up, and that's his best buddy. And I said, Miley looks at me, and I said, "Wait, I'm just out here for one thing. That's to give your your redneck buddy out in right field time to get loose." And he started laughing, you know, because yeah. there's Will cranking away, and. And so uh and you know I've done some things uh, crazy. I've I've told I tell this funny story and maybe hopefully I uh, won't offend anybody but I was in Kansas City pitching coach for the Royals. We're playing the Yankees. Uh we're winning one nothing. It's in the 8th inning and I have a pitcher named Dan Reichert uh, who's gone 8 innings. He's given up one hit and he's walked about eight guys. And we all of a sudden he throws eight balls in a row, two to the screen, bouncing them, catcher's blocking them. Uh first and second, one out and uh legal and Jorge Posada is coming to the plate manager says, go out and talk to him. I didn't know what to say to him. I I mean, he was all over the place. And I, so I walked out to the mound and I said to Danny, true story. And the sports psychologist used this to this day. (laughs) I said, Danny, we have to get Posada out. And he says to me, quite frankly, well, tell me something I don't know. And I said, no, you don't hear me. I said, we need to get Jose, we need to get Jorge Posada out quickly. He says, quickly. Why is that? I said, I got to go to the bathroom really bad. (laughs) And the catcher started laughing. He started laughing. And uh, I kind of got him where I wanted, and he says, okay, Stromi, I'll get him out in three pitches or less. I said, Dan, it's got to be two or less. I can't hold it any longer. (laughs) I turned around in front of 50,000 people at Kauffman Stadium and pinched my butt muscles and waddled off the mound, and I could hear them laughing behind me. Sure enough, he throws a first-pitch fastball, ground ball to second base, double play. We end up winning the game. It was maybe one of the greatest mound visits I've ever made, and uh, it made me realize that – Sometimes if you can just go out and alleviate some of the pressure that they're feeling at that time, reset things, breathe a little bit, you're on your way.
0: Yeah, I think people probably have the misconception that when there's a mound visit, it's usually either somebody's yelling at somebody or somebody's mad or or you're only just talking about mechanics. But from my experience, when you come out there, very seldom are we talking about anything extremely specific. Usually yeah. you just give it a break.
1: Yeah, usually what I would do with you possibly is, let's say if you're missing some arm side, mm-hmm. arm side fastballs, I might just say, hey, let's refocus and let's nail a, let's mail, mail an extension side fastball, okay, and kind of give you an idea that uh, I need to get through this pitch because then I know that would clean up your breaking ball, that would clean up your sweeper, they would clean up your changeup. It would clean up a lot of your different pitches. So when you talk in terms for you young pitching coaches out there, instead of internal type things, talking external let them refocus on that, and usually that uh, delivery will take care of itself. It is really difficult to repeat the deliveries time after time. Uh, the body is too complex to think that you're gonna. It's almost like a golf swing. It's just never. It's never the same. Yeah. And uh, you just hope that your misses, because uh, you're gonna have misses. You're aren't aren't uh, aren't great, and that you're that you have more hits than you have misses.
0: For sure, I will say this: you have this. Uh, you have the ability. I, I talk about a keyring all the time, where I've. I have a key ring that's got, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 keys on it. And every day when I'm out there on the mound, I'm having to try a key in the lock and see if this one's working today. If that one, all right, we'll move on to the next one. All right. And, but they're all trying to open the same door. They're all trying to get you back to where you're supposed to be into that clean delivery, that repeatable delivery. But has that always been a passion for you, the the mechanics of pitching? Has that been something you've been well, interested I, in forever?
1: I think that uh, I think with myself uh, shortening my my career with the Tommy John surgery, Really kind of led me down the path of trying to figure out what causes arm problems, what uh, what can we do, and I and I'm closer now than I've ever been. There's some stuff that I'm working on right now that uh, I don't even know if ASMI and uh, other doctors realize in terms of uh, arm action and the way the body wants to move and things like that. So we're we're trying to quantify that right now, and one of these days we'll we'll put together a study that that hopefully will put uh, Tommy John out of business. But it pains me to see young kids hurting their arms like they do. Um, uh, and I don't think – I've always made a statement. I don't think any coaches intentionally try and hurt pitchers. I just think it's a lack of knowledge. Right. Uh, workloads and things like that where they're asking uh, youngsters that aren't strong enough. You know, Nolan Ryan pitched 46 until he was 46 years old. Nolan. people don't realize when Nolan Ryan was 18 years old in 19 and 20, the Vietnam War was going on, and Nolan Ryan was gonna be drafted. Uh, Nolan Ryan was throwing 100 miles an hour all over the place, throwing balls all over the place, wide open delivery, not any kind of delivery that we saw when he was with the Angels or the, or the Astros or the Rangers. So Tommy John was able to, to go those three years only throwing 50 innings per year because he had National Guard duty, oh. so he could stay out of the Vietnam War. So the Mets put him on that what happens between the ages of 18 and 21 22 the body matures it gets stronger had he not had that and continued to throw 100 miles an hour at the delivery he had with the 69 Mets we would not have had I firmly believe we would not have had the Nolan Ryan that broke all the strikeout records so sometimes events happen that that uh we don't realize it's kind of like my idea that a a butterfly flapping its wings in Asia can create a tsunami in, in 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 San Francisco. Little things can mean big things, and in this case, in my opinion, the Vietnam War saved Nolan Ryan's career.
0: Yeah, and you know, I my story is not like that at all. But I didn't have any pitching coaches growing up. I played baseball and basketball and soccer and a bunch of different sports. So. I didn't. Uh, I didn't throw a ton. I didn't. Th- well, I didn't pitch a ton. I should say I threw all the time. I always played catch with whoever would play catch with me, um, but I had nobody telling me whether it was right or wrong or indifferent. Right. So uh, it was just kind of the natural way that I threw. But I think, like you said, playing the other sports saved me from getting uh, just pigeonholed into into pitching because I knew from an early age, about 10, 11 years old, that I was better at pitching than the average kid was, right. and given. Given where I lived and um, the resources that we had, I probably could have gone to gone on to pitch a lot when I was younger, but I didn't because I wanted to play other things too.
1: Right, you know, it's, uh, I played all the sports in high school. I, I never had a gym class. Uh, I never lifted weights. I never did anything to prepare myself. It was football, basketball, baseball, mm-hmm. and then I go to I went to USC. Then I go to Alaska for three summers and pitch up there. and And it's funny that I, I look now back now. I, I ended up throwing my senior year in college maybe 130 innings. We win the College World Series. I sign. I go to Visalia, uh, California League. I looked at the back of my baseball card the other day, which I haven't done in a long time. I I made 10 starts in Visalia, and I threw 78 innings. So I almost damn threw eight innings a game Yeah. coming off that. Nowadays, with the workload I'd had, you don't pitch at all. They had to shut you down, for sure. They shut you down and get ready. So back then, it was just, excuse me, workload, and and get better. Then from there, where do you go? Instructional league, right? And then before you know it, you're now you're pitching double A. The next year, uh, you pitch a half year double A. You go to triple A. With each level, you know a stress an inning at the big league level is more stressful than an inning at A Oh yeah, and uh, the cumulative effect finally got me, and I realized that um, this wasn't going to last a long time.
0: Who who did you talk to early on when you were coaching? Who were the guys that you sought out to think? I think we can make a difference in helping guys arms work the right way
1: well I think the the guy that had the biggest influence on me I was doing a clinic in uh, I was doing a clinic in Washington Washington State at the University of Washington uh, there was a young man throwing in the warehouse or in the field house that day throwing the ball from goal post to goal post by the name of Tim Linsicum. really so I was watching this skinny guy throw the ball to the moon but there was a guy named Paul Nyman who came uh, to speak at that uh, session and he really he really hit me between the eyes you know I had been Kind of a pitch by the position pitch, you know, get to a balance point, uh, point the glove at the target, all these different things, and he brought an athletic bent to in his talk. And I sat in the back of the room thinking, "What a dummy I've been!" You know, <laughs> and you think to yourself, "I wonder how many pitchers I've, I haven't given the best information to." And I delved. This was about the year 2000, and I delved into this uh, this idea of seeking out the the best teachers in terms. And I actually went to, I studied. Uh, Cricket throwers, I studied. Uh, uh, I studied javelin throwers. I studied rotational type people like discus throwers and shot putters, and and how they rotated the torso. And I started to piece these pieces together. Got some things wrong. Reevaluated. Went back. Always knowing that I, I don't know what I don't know. Right. And uh, I think even to this day, I'm still picking up stuff. That uh, that I, I it hits me that I I should have realized it, and I have to go back to the basics sometimes. Because you can sometimes not see the forest for the trees. You look at this picture, and that's so I go to hitting people. I'll say, what do you see with McHugh? What do you see with this? Is there tipping going on? What do you see? So I seek everybody out.
0: I feel like at this point you've got a <laughs> – you probably have a reference book in your mind of pitching philosophy and pitching keys or mechanics to go through. So when a young kid is coming up through the organization and you see him – does something? Can you tell within the first bullpen a guy throws that I see something that we, we need to make an adjustment here with?
1: Yeah, no question. Um, there's uh, And there's key things you look for. You look for timing. You look for rhythm. You look for where where the arm is at foot strike, um, what the front side glove is doing. It's like the other day Lance was throwing, and uh, he was doing his rehab, and he says, how my arm stroke look? And I said, I'm not looking at your arm stroke, Lance. I'm looking at your front side glove. That's the key thing for me. Your arm basically is I tell him that the arm is really brain dead. It's gonna follow the path of what the body does and what the front side does. It's basically purpose basic purpose is to hold on to the ball. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we talked a little bit of, and I think I think, you know, I looked at Lance as a young pitcher coming up and and I kind of predicted that he would he would have issues. Okay. It was just how long could we hold on with this gifted, gifted pitcher? And he helped us win a World Series. I mean time.
0: he was in he was incredible. <laughs>
1: And but you knew he was. I could sense he was going through the same thing I did. So if we can clean up this front side glove, I think he's going to be very healthy for the next ten years.
0: Uh, he, he's got the ability to. He's got the ability to go out and be an elite pitcher for for a long time. And I think that now with now with how uh, how well Tommy John has, uh, how efficient it's gotten, and how efficient the rehab has gotten, and now you've seen so many guys be able to come back and be as good, if not better, than they were before after Tommy John surgery. It's got to be somewhat rewarding to, to look at that and see the history that you played in that and say, you know, I, I think that we have come a long way in that terms.
1: Yeah, it's funny you should bring this up because I was eating lunch today with our uh, one of our team doctors, and we were talking about the Tommy John surgery. And I asked him a series of questions. I said, uh, do you guys come back with the same velocity? What if you have two Tommy Johns? What's the situation here? What's it? And, it, and I knew what he was going to tell me. He says the reason guys come back better from Tommy John, quite simply, is they work harder. Yeah. They work out harder. They do things to prevent it. Again, if they did after Tommy John, if they did it before they ever got it, there'd be less Tommy Johns.
0: Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about you outside of the baseball world because you're an extremely interesting person. Um, we've gotten to know each other really well over the last last six years. Uh, I think what we both enjoy is traveling. And you've traveled a lot of places in the world at this point.
1: Yeah. I've been, uh, I've been fortunate to do a lot of clinics in Europe. My wife and I enjoy going. We go every year. Uh, I promote baseball in Europe. I do clinics and basically I'll do a clinic for three days, but I do it so that my wife and I can head out and explore, uh, places that we had not seen before. My, my joy in life, for example, we go to, you know, when we stay in the hotel there in Seattle, catty corner to that is a, um, Barnes and Noble.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: My idea is to go in there and get a cup of coffee, sit down with a guidebook and, and map out a trip, you know, oh, sit yeah. in a soft chair. And I know yourself, you, you, your wife and, and your little baby actually made an extensive trip to Europe. And of course, when I found out about that, just like with Tony Kemp this past year, went to Europe. I'm, I love hearing where you guys go, what you've seen, places you've stayed, things like that. This next, uh, this next winter, Carrie and I, uh, I'm doing a clinic in Budapest. I've never been there before. Uh, then I'm going back to Italy in January. Uh, so I've done clinics in every country in Europe, uh, outside of uh, Portugal, I think. And we visited Portugal, which I loved. Uh, but I've been all the Scandinavian countries, Never been to Russia, but all the European countries I've been in, I'm kind of venturing my way into Eastern Europe a little bit. Czech, yeah. Czech Republic, I've done clinics there, but going to Budapest, which is supposed to be an exciting city, I'm looking forward to that. And then I, I have to figure where I'm going to go from there. And I love just to, you know, it might be a trip down the river, going back toward uh, Berlin, let's say, or something yeah. like that. But I actually one of the great trips I took was I went to, um, I went to East Germany prior to the wall coming down. Really, and so I was in Sweden. I, I came, I came south. I went into uh, Berlin on the east, the east side, East Berlin. Uh, I saw saw people goose stepping in Alexanderplatz. Went across the wall, stayed in West Berlin. Kept coming back and forth. Uh, it was quite uh, quite interesting. And and then went into Poland. I went to all the concentration camps in Poland just to get a feel for that. Uh, went in Munich. Went to uh, uh, went there to the concentration camp. Uh, and and in, unless people get outside of their their circle—they really don't realize what the world has to offer them—and and you have that because you're an intellectual guy that enjoys this kind of stuff. Your wife obviously does; she's an international lady, and uh, so I, I commend you, Tony Camp. Anybody who ventures out of their comfort zone of a 20-mile radius of their home and McDonald's and and uh, Chili's and these kind of places and try different foods, different drinks, different people. Um, I love doing it.
0: We're here in Monterey, Mexico. And if you look behind you, Strami, right down from you right there, there is a Chili's.
1: Yeah, I, know I saw it. <laughs> you know, I saw that this morning. Uh, You're right. You're right.
0: But we go to all kinds of different places on the road throughout the season. And, um, I try in the mornings, I try to get a routine of wherever we're going, try to get up, eat some breakfast, get some coffee, go walk around whatever city we're in, um, see a little bit of it. But once again, this is in, you know, 2019 where there's guys have video games, guys have the internet, guys have Netflix and movies and all kinds of stuff that can keep you in your room, entertained in your room for a while. But when you were coming up and that wasn't the case, what would you do when you would go to a city?
1: Well, if if it was a city that I had, you know, first time I went to uh, New York, for example, um, uh, when I was with the Mets, I was, I didn't know what I was doing. I I drove up from Tidewater as a pitcher. In my little Datsun B210 with a Basset Hound, and I had no idea where I was going. <laughs> uh, the city was gargantuan, and uh, so I existed. But then when I got traded to the Padres, uh, came into came into Shea, uh, the then Shea Stadium, and had a day or so, and went to all around Manhattan, wanted to go to the museums, going to go to the art places and, and see that time. Boston is an exceptional place to go. Uh, we go to Washington, D.C. during the All-Star Game this past year. That was great to go to. Um, so each city, there, each city has a unique, either a cultural place or or different food or something that you can, if you take the time to do a little research, you can uh, actually enhance your life. And, and it'll do one of two things. It'll either in, in, increase your appreciation for things or it'll make you appreciate what you do have. I've grappled with, for example, taking a trip to India. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've studied India. I've seen video. Uh, I'm a big, I, I love watching Rick Steves and and his travel shows, and on the BBC travel shows, I I, I will wake up early in the morning to catch a, a travel show, <laughs> and uh, I I take notes while the travel show is going on, places to eat, things like that, try different foods, and uh, so it is a it's a it's a passion of mine, and and one thing I will say, if you are young, don't wait, don't wait, time goes fast as I well know, and if if you say well I'll do it next year, I need to get my think this in order. I need to get this in order. I can't do it this year because I got this going. You as a young man have taken, gone forward. I mean, to, to take around a, a young child around Europe, <laughs> that was not easy. I am it sure. It was a gamble for sure. Yeah, and, uh, but you came out the other end and you guys are fine. And, uh, and I'm sure, you know, you'll take, take the child again and, and get after it. Oh, I, think yeah. you have a, I think you told me you have a trip plan this next year. We do.
0: We've got, now we've got two boys. We've got a three, three-year-old and a Three month old, yeah. And uh, our next our trip that we're in the process of planning is hopefully Germany and the kind of Central European, uh, some of those Central European cities, Munich and Berlin, Frankfurt, uh, Prague, maybe yeah. into
1: Zurich. Uh, don't forget, there's a town called Rothenburg. It's uh, probably the most uh, well preserved Middle Medieval walled city. That's uh, that's absolutely gorgeous, and uh, Southern Germany is absolutely fabulous. Uh, uh, the castle of Neuschwanstein, which is the castle of Disneyland, is right there in oh, southern really? Bavaria, and uh, very, very good. Now, the one thing, the food is great, but man, the, 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 it's heavy. We're going to so, gain some weight. No <laughs> it's doubt, it's heavy, and uh, we have to
0: go into a steep cutting phase in the last month there you of go. the season.
1: But uh, no, it's, it's it's a beautiful country. I, I, I actually, uh, Colin, you know, I I listen to Verlander and Cole talk about their cars all the time. And <laughs> uh, back in my car day, I'm I'm driving a Kia now, but back when I was a, a player and was kind of full of it. Uh, I went over there and I bought a BMW, and drove it around for six weeks, uh, all the way from uh, from Munich, all the way down into Greece, into U- the Yugoslavia, up the coast of Yugoslavia, back into Venice, back into Amsterdam, and shipped it home. And uh, to be able to get a brand new with one tenth of a mile uh, stick shift BMW 325, and and put Wagner on and head down the, the autobahn at about 120 miles an hour. <laughs> Scared to death, gripping the steering wheel. Uh, <laughs> quite, quite a, quite, quite an experience.
0: Man, I, I have a hard time even believing that there's anything on your list. But we've talked. I, I've talked with other guests about. I have a list that keeps getting longer day by day of things I want to do post baseball that that I haven't been able to because you know we play baseball during the mm-hmm. summer or I don't want to you know get hurt doing sure, whatever. Sure. Do you have a list of anything that you are like? Waiting to be done with baseball, waiting to retire, to have all of the time to yourself to go do, or have yeah, you there's done it a couple all things.
1: Already? I you know I, when I got done playing, I was able to ski, so I, I, I've done the skiing route. Uh, I still play golf. Uh, I've done uh, some of the other things that. Uh, but I think that uh, I think when I'm done, I, I really have some dreams. I, I would like to take Carrie to uh, uh, to Maria. I'd like to take her to Fiji. I'd like to really one of my dreams is to spend a week. And one of those over over the water bungalows that you see advertised, you know. Oh that's, yeah. And and I really want to do it without letting Carrie know about it. I just want to tell her we're getting on a plane, and here we are, and let her be surprised. She loves the water. She loves to swim, and I think that would be a joy. And then, of course, you know, not having had children in my life, I've I've had nothing but dogs my whole life. I'm a big animal lover, a big dog lover. Um, you know, it would not be beyond me to open up a dog sanctuary. Uh, we both, Carrie and I, are. Are big, uh, big animal lovers and uh, big advocates. Yeah, and, oh, and supporters. Love them. And yeah. I, I, you know, I just, you know, I see, I see, uh, and I know people see, but I, I think, I think the Lord put God, put dogs on this earth to to help human beings. I really do. And uh, you know, it, it's it's a trite comment, and it's it's not to make light of anything, but if you think about what God is spelled backwards, <laughs> it's dog. <laughs> there you go. You know, and uh, and again, a guy kind of get a little emotional when I think of. Of 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 dogs because they're I come home after in the end of an, after a tough game and they're really happy to see me so they bring me a lot of joy and a lot of smiles
0: yeah and they don't care what the what my ERA is that's or, for sure or what our win and loss record that's is. that's for sure that's for sure <laughs> yeah that's what I, that's why I like having young having young kids when they get older and they start understanding wins and losses and statistics I'll have to explain to them um, about wins and losses and right. how good or poor i was doing but well, right I think now that, they don't care <laughs> i
1: think at this point in time you can rest pretty assured that uh when all's said and done and, and you take the uniform off you will look back and uh, be very proud of especially from where you came from and and the struggles that you had uh you know it's uh i mean you can go back and and look at your time uh with uh with the mets uh, with the rockies and uh turning this thing around i mean it's uh it's not easy to uh, get beaten down and to keep your head up and keep going. We have a number of ki- guys on this team. Will Harris, for example, is a prime oh, yeah, example for sure. of this happening. He wasn't given anything. Um, Wade Miley's been beaten up, and he's come back here. He's enjoying his time here. But there are very few Verlanders and Coles right. that are out there. It's usually made up of a group of guys that that uh, who's who willed their way to finding the, the, their place in this game, which is. An elite group, and and Colin, I will tell you, there will never go a day will ever when you get to be my age, you will still remember the day you pitched in the big leagues. Oh yeah, it will never leave you. I know you're 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 a family man first, a faith based person uh, along with your family, and then baseball is third. Uh, but you will never forget certain instances of uh, winning the World Series and 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 being able to call Charlie Morton a teammate or or uh, Lance or or anybody that you've run into—that's uh, even somebody who may not have been with us for any period of time—that that you gravitated because you're very personable, you're very intelligent, you're very smart, and uh, and you understand what how fleeting this this game can be.
0: Yeah, the people in this game are the th- is the thing that always always brings me back. No matter where you're at or or what you whether things are going well or going poorly, the the guys <clears throat> the guys in the locker room, the the people that you meet in the front office, the people that you meet in the clubhouse. Um, those people, they're kind of, they're the lifeblood of this game and and they're the people that keep this game going. It's yes, what we do on the field is the thing that's shown on TV, but there's so many things that go on in the background, that go on in the clubhouse, that go on behind the scenes that kind of prop us up and make us who we are. And, and those people are some of the most amazing people I've ever met. And like you're, like you're saying, I'm sure you have so many people in your memory that you've played with or played alongside for, for all of those years or coached alongside as well
1: yeah for sure it's a it's a it's a relatively small fraternity, uh, but you know even even when I talk to players that played that never made it to the major leagues and and uh, and they speak in kind of not they don't they, they speak in almost defeatist terms. Uh, well, you know I only played double a or um, and I, I say to them, you you realize that of all the people that played baseball, you're in the top one percentile of people out there. You should be very proud of of, of the level you got to. The fact that you were able to compete in a very difficult game, uh, the fact that you didn't make make it to the big leagues, could have been circumstance. It could have been timing. It could have been anything. Think about yourself. Had Oberholzer or somebody not? Oh yeah. Uh, had had we had a a, a five man rotation that year, that was dealing and and there was no openings and and Colin McHugh may have been a, a pitching in AAA that year. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. and and so opportunity presented itself, but what you did, you seized it. You seized it and that's that's why each of these minor leaguers that we have i stay on top of the minor leaguers I just talked to a couple today uh that sometimes maybe are struggling at that level and they think the major leagues look so far away um, really if you just keep grinding and and, and it, it, you know if it's meant to be it's meant to be
0: yep yeah, i was talking to i was actually talking to uh my therapist this morning and we were talking about the idea of uh, of humility in baseball and baseball has a way of humbling you Over and over and over again, it's a pretty, a pretty humbling game. But we were talking about the idea of earning something versus being, being lucky. Yeah, and we were saying that there really, it's both. And you can both have worked for everything that you've, that you have, and everything that you have has been given to you. And it's, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both. And I think that's, that's definitely the case in my career.
1: Well, you've been given certain gifts. Uh, it's up to us to utilize those gifts to the best of our ability and to not squander them. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, yourself, you and I have both seen players that have been given much better gifts than we have. Oh, yeah. And 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 they get squandered somehow, whether it be through um, decisions that they've made, off-field decisions, uh, on-field decisions, anything that uh, might curtail it, and, and uh, nothing's guaranteed. And so you want to give yourself the best chance to be as successful as you can in whatever field, endeavor that you find yourself that you enjoy. Uh, obviously, you and I both enjoy this game. You know, it reminds me of the book, uh, Jim Bouton wrote a book in 1970. I was just out of college. I went to the Cal League in Visalia, uh, started to get beaten around a little bit, you know, and and I read this book and in the last line in Bouton's Ball Four, read all these years, I thought it was me holding on to the baseball, when in reality, it was the baseball holding to me and that line has stuck with me. And I said, boy, if that's not the truth. I mean, you, you, I wake up thinking about it every day. Uh, and it's, uh, it's just a joy to be involved in it at this level. And w- I'd be just as happy if it wasn't the major leagues. It's, baseball's baseball, whatever level it is. And, and, and uh, it's a beautiful game when played well. And, uh, and uh, I love this game.
0: Yeah, uh, it shows. It shows. And everybody that's yeah. been a pitcher or a coach underneath you, would say the same thing that uh, there is no doubt that you care. There's no doubt that you yeah. um, care about them, care about the game, care about care about making making this place a better a better place than when you when you got here. But I have one more question, and then we will uh, we'll be done. But um, if you could give one piece of advice to a coach, young coach that's coming up in professional baseball right now, what would it be?
1: Uh, I would say to a young coach coming up do do your research. Uh, be prepared. Uh, treat each individual, se- each per- each pitcher, as an individual separately. Uh, do not pigeonhole and have one philosophy for all, because not uh, one shoot does not fit all. Uh, but just be prepared for. And and the biggest thing is, if you don't know, try and find out. Try. There's a lot of information out there, both good and bad. Uh, talk to people. Uh, develop a toolbox for your your coaching that will allow you to deal with different personalities, different styles, uh, different pitch shapes, any, whatever the case may be, and, uh, and I think and, – and, and let them let – them, it's their game. And the biggest thing I would say to them, really, now that I think about it, allow them to become their own best – their own pitching coach. Mm-hmm. And your job as a coach is to maybe shorten the, the cycle a little bit if they get off track, nudge them back onto the railroad track, but let them be the guy that is going to – what they feel – what they know and, and let them ride that as far as they can.
0: Yeah. We've done that plenty of times, me and you, we've had yeah. good talks on the mound. We've had yelling matches each other on the mound, <laughs> but I am grateful for all of them. Strami, thank yeah. you for being here with us. I appreciate it.
1: My pleasure, Colin. This is, uh, you know, I think the world of you and your family and, uh, and we're going to, we're going to continue this, uh, this quest, uh, for a few more years
0: together. I hope. I hope so too. All right, everybody. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. We'll come back to you soon.